Broadcasting from Boston, Massachusetts, the Smart Cities podcast is the only podcast dedicated to all things smart cities. The podcast is the creation of ARC Advisory Group's Smart City Practice. ARC advises leading companies, municipalities, and governments on technology trends and market dynamics that affect their business and quality of life in their cities. To engage further, please like and share our podcast or reach out directly on Twitter at Smart City Viewpoints or on our website at www.arcweb.com backslash industries backslash smart dash cities. Welcome to another edition of the Smart City Podcast. Today we're broadcasting live from the ARC Forum here in Orlando, Florida. Today I'm very happy to welcome as guests Bob Hagenau of cplane.ai and Don Bartuzia from Collaborative Systems Integration. Welcome, gentlemen. How are you today? Great. Fine, Jim. Fine. Thank you. Great. Uh, there's so much going on here today at the ARC Forum. Um, Let's talk about your focus, which I understand is open process automation. That's correct, yeah. How do you get to this market space? Tell us a little bit about yourselves, perhaps, and um, and about the ecosystem. Absolutely. Yeah, well, I, I would say that you know the motivation was to solve uh, you know a big problem for the end users with respect to the you know the current the, the current state of the art of industrial control systems. And actually, ARC was a big part of the story because we first announced. And so I was working for ExxonMobil at the time as the chief engineer for process control, tasked with finding a, a new solution to a problem of replacing and upgrading control systems. So the idea that was birthed was to transform the industry away from closed proprietary systems to a standards-based, open, secure, and interoperable architecture. So I'm pleased to say now, some six or seven years after that first announcement of the idea at ARC Forum, what Bob and I are going to talk about is the steps, the progress that's been made over this time, and how close to realization and changing the, what's happened, what the customers can use. So that's that's what we'll get into in, in this chat. That's that, that's great and fascinating. Um, before some of our um, less enlightened listeners, can you talk about the benefits of open protocols and standardized protocols, and perhaps contrast them against each other? Yeah, I'll let I'll let Bob address that because he's well, you know well steeped into what the value proposition is. Yeah. So uh, first of all, let me introduce myself. I, I kind of bring I'm the IT of this OT uh, relationship here. So Don brings deep industrial background. I come out of the IT space. This is my I'm a serial entrepreneur. This is my fifth startup. Uh, four others have been successful, uh, luckily. But I've also been an executive at several large companies. I was an SVP at SAP. Um, so I bring a lot of background, but uh, you know what what we're doing here is really bringing um, uh, software-defined infrastructure and, and a lot of modern IT architecture into realization in uh, process control system, and uh, that brings a tremendous amount of benefits. Um, so we'll walk through some of those in a, in a little bit, but those are some of the big things. But the open process automation is uh, provides a standard by which companies can start to create interoperable components 
in this system that are interchangeable and provide kind of break the harness of uh, vendor lock-in that, uh, that is on them today, as well as um, the rip and replace model that they currently have in place, right? You can evolve these systems as you see fit on an ongoing basis to be able to take advantage of new technologies that are coming out, to be able to replace aging equipment with more modern equipment, new CPUs, all of that in a easy to transition state, right? It's no longer difficult to do that, which is today it's painful to do that. Now it's going to be much easier to do that and you can select from an, an entire set of uh, ecosystem vendors that are participating, right? Today, if I buy a DCS from a proprietary vendor, uh, I'm then harnessed to whatever that vendor can do to push the technology forward, right? They're a single company. They're good companies, a lot of good engineers in these DCS companies, but they're only single companies. When you open that up, you have an entire ecosystem of companies that are all pushing forward. Think of it as, you know, when we went from the uh, proprietary PCs where you had Atari and Commodore to where you went to the open IBM PC. All of a sudden, IBM came out with an open platform for PCs, and the amount of innovation that happened with spreadsheets and word processors and desktop publishing exploded, right? It's a similar thing here. I think you're going to see a lot of innovation. The innovation curve is going to accelerate significantly as we move into the open uh, control era. And uh, there's going to be a lot of innovation that we can't even imagine that's going to happen here. Um, that's, that, that's fascinating. As you mentioned, this is a standard. Standards um, uh, are on a continuum. Uh, is this, on one end of the continuum, a suggested framework? Or on the other end, is it a strict application of, say, the seven-layer OSI interoperability model? Or does it sit somewhere in between? No, it's not a suggestion. So it's a, it's a standard that comes with a conformance certification process that we're bringing, we're bringing to, uh, in phase with the development of the standard. So let me comment. So uh, the, the, the work of the Open Process Automation Forum of the Open Group started in earnest in 2017. So now, at, at present, three, uh, three releases of that standard have been published. Okay? The, the business ecosystem that enables the transformation that Bob has described is being assembled now. And, and what at, the, at this time, now in 2022, you're starting to see products being brought forth by suppliers and by our two companies that embody the open process automation vision and, and the standard as much as it can be, can be brought forward now by, by the companies that are working on the standard and have the insights on where it's headed. So, so it's, a, it's a very actionable standard. It's not just a set of suggestions. There are conformance certification processes that the component suppliers are going to have to conform to to get certified against the standard. So it's not only a documented interoperability standard, but it also has along with it a parallel certification process. Absolutely. Yeah, which is going to ensure that you can do interchangeability of, of components, right? Um, that's a lot of what brings the ability to do that. Um, you know, last year was a very exciting year for open process automation because with the third version of the, the standard being released last year, it was actually the first version where you could build an operational system. 
Um, and what we realized was no single company can bring a system to market because we started hearing end users saying, hey, our executives are bought into this. This is sounding really exciting. We love what open process automation is going to bring to our business. Where do I buy one? How do and we get started? How do we get started, right? And the reality is because no single company can bring this to market by themselves because it is a multi-vendor system, um, it required a, a coalition of companies. And so that's what we did last year was we formed – uh, COPA, which is a coalition for open process automation. Think of it as a, 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 a mirrored group to OPATH. And OPATH, by definition, is defining the standard, right? But they, by charter, cannot actually encourage commercialization of that standard. So we needed a separate organization that has many of the same members, as Don said, that are, are dedicated and committed to working on the commercialization of these products, right, and working together. So COPA is a – we now have 14 member companies, everyone – from, you know, uh, we have Phoenix Contact, Codasys, Schmar, uh, Stahl, uh, a lot of IT industrial, or a lot of industrial companies, but also IT leaders as well, like Intel and some of their ODMs that are creating low-cost industrial PCs that are going to be a part of this. So you've got companies like Supermicro and ASRock Industrial and others. So, okay, so, so you have... Um, uh, I, I like the purity here, and just to just to restate, perhaps simplify for myself, is that on one hand you have a pure standards group, and on the other, and then you have a parallel trade association essentially yes. that's commercial. I, I wouldn't call it a trade association. I, I, it's more of a coalition of the willing. We, yeah. and okay. uh, so CSI and C plane together kind of instigated this, but we we built we yeah. built this coalition of the willing. Particularly, you know, these are smaller suppliers. Who, who are incented to enter this business ecosystem. And that's what's happening in practice. Smaller, well, we do have Intel yeah, and Intel, Phoenix Contact and some big companies yeah, in but, here. But, right? but, the, uh, but, the, but the point is, it was the, the non-traditional suppliers. They, they and have, we we have, put the whole yeah. system together. Right. That's what CSI and CPLAN These vendors are ones yeah. that bring components. Right. They're not trying to bring an entire DCS system. They're not one of the big seven, right? Um, so, so that, that's what you should don't, don't it's not a trade association it's a yeah. coalition of the willing and it's not a marketing coalition yeah. it's not a sales coalition this is a technical coalition where yeah. you know last year uh, uh, I can name one period where we had for four months we had uh, companies that were included uh, Phoenix Contact and Stahl and Codasys and Seaplane all on a call on a weekly basis for two hours to kind of say, how do we take this standard that's on a piece of paper and breathe life into it, right? Because as you do that, you find some gaps. You have to figure out how to make this work. And so those are some of the things that we were doing. And these are companies that like Stahl and Phoenix Contact that are competitors, right? Yeah. That, you know, this is kind of unprecedented in this industry that they're working collaboratively together to bring these systems to life and to actually make them work, to make them interchangeable, to... Uh, so it's it's a uh, it's exciting. Yeah. What we're so seeing. It certainly sounds it. In this coalition of the willing, is that where the certifications no. occur, or is That's it kind of occurring the standards group? The standards group okay. is is the center for certification. Yeah. Not not there's, Copa collects no fees. It's it's development equity. Yeah. Uh, what the companies contribute is the talent of their engineers. And their boss has given them the time to work with us to, to make working instances of systems. Yeah. So that, that's, that's what it is. Yeah. Okay. We, I think we covered a bit of some of the benefits of, of open uh, interoperable systems. Um, we, we may have left off some. The one comes to mind is commoditization of the products. Prices come down. Yes. They become commodities. 
Um, and then you would get suppliers attempting to uh, differentiate by adding newer features. So, so a right. second benefit is that guess what? You get newer features quicker. Yep. Um, there's there's a lot of benefits in um, in open standardized protocols. Yeah. Um, it's not all rosy, however. There's um, I'm sure there are some obstacles in this uh, scenario. What are the obstacles in this ecosystem? Well, you know, there's a lot of standards that have come and gone, I would say, in the industrial marketplace in the past. And uh, as uh, one, the CTO of one major DCS vendor recently pointed out to me, I've been around for 40 years. I've seen a lot come and go. OPAS is different, and it's different for two reasons. One is that it's led by the end users, right? ExxonMobil started this, but they had 25 different major you know, Fortune 1000 companies that are manufacturers that were in the same pickle that wanted to get free of vendor lock-in and start to recognize a lot of these benefits. So they've been leading it for the last six years. They're the ones that have published this standard you know, in its third version and continue to work on this and commit time, significant time to this, right? So the fact that it's an end-user-led standard is a big difference, right? It's not a vendor trying to accomplish something for their business. This is the end-user saying, we need to open this up for our own and not just for manufacturing, right? I know smart cities and critical infrastructure are part of what you follow, Jim. It, it applies to those segments as well. So um, it's a there's there's a it's it's a very interesting thing. It's not a it's not the standards that we've seen in the past, um, and we see it. It's a critical kind of rallying cry or rallying point, I should say, for all of these companies that want to contribute their best of breed components to be able to create this next generation of open distributed control systems yeah so I would say if I, a couple of a couple of barriers or, or being alternatively stated as risks I'll pick I'll cite two so one of the big questions is in contrast to the current marketplace where a supplier sends mm -hmm. and sells a whole stack the customers are concerned about who's going to be responsible and accountable yeah. for performance of a system that's built of heterogeneous components well, we're really pleased that one of the most significant roles in the ecosystem is that of the control systems integrator. And one of the COPA members is one of the largest control systems integrators in the world, Wood Group, and who have made a number of commitments at this year's conference about how serious they are at being that systems integrator that mm -hmm. is going to be accountable for performance of the instances of systems OPAS-based systems that they provide to the operating company. The, the second barrier I would cite, and I'll, I'll introduce this one by, by analogy, so a, a lot of change is required, but the change is required both on the buy side of the house and the sell side of the house. And the analogy I've used that seems to be resonating with people is just think about the transition from the horse-drawn carriage to the automobile. Well, the customers had to learn how to drive the cars in addition to the manufacturers having to learn how to make cars, right. not buggies. So that, that, that commitment to learn to embrace the change is another barrier. Mm -hmm. And, and we, have, we are bringing to the market, we'll, we'll elaborate on this second, second, uh, separately, is a, is a quick start. It's a product and a training program. We'll, we'll elaborate that on a second. I'll stop there. Yeah. Um, that's, that's interesting. In, uh, you know, digital transformation does have the, uh, the three pillars of technology, which for many of us we think is easy, 
Um, that technology then uh, involves your business processes, which takes often more thinking than actually just selecting or deploying or even creating the technology. And then perhaps the thorniest, the most difficult challenge of all is to get your actual people to embrace those processes and that technology. So uh, that's, um, that's a very valid point. Yeah, and uh, change management within these businesses is is a is is something that needs to be proactively addressed, right? Especially when you've got engineers that have committed 30 years and kind of bet their career on a proprietary system, right? And that's what they know, right? So they're going to be resistant to change. But the reality is, change has to happen because the new engineers coming out of school are unwilling to commit their entire career to learning a proprietary system that they're going to bet is going to be around for their entire career, right? They want to be able to have the mobility to move around. They want to have the ability to have kind of a skill set that's widely applicable. And that's and they're used to open technology. Not, and they're not, they're not wanting to commit to proprietary technology. And as we know, um, uh, you know, personnel and staffing is an increasingly difficult issue for people. A lot of the uh, process controls engineers that know the proprietary systems are starting to retire at a pretty rapid rate right now. And so it is a, it's a challenge that the industry has to confront. And uh, so open process automation is kind of an opportunity to break that mold. Um, and as Don said, as you start to, uh, they need to learn the new technology. So we've created something called the COPA Quick Start, which is a operational control system that uh, is runs a fire heater control uh, so multivariant. A dynamic simulation of a process including yeah. emulated instruments. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Uh, and it has components. 14 different uh, vendors have contributed different components to this system. It, it's working. It's, it's dem demonstrable in our booth. Uh, it's, it's something that uh, companies can actually buy and have internally and it comes with a set of training. And we do kind of three types of training. We do kind of a two-hour training for the management team and the executives so they can understand how is this going to change their business, uh, what are the opportunities, and discuss with them what their perceived risks are, right, some of the things that Don was talking about. Um, so uh, we can address that with them. Uh, the second component is uh, a two-day training course where we go more in-depth uh, we'll do live demonstrations on the on the Copa Quick Start you know, training unit, uh, and they'll be able to actually see how it works and understand more broadly uh, what what open process automation is going to mean for the process control uh, staff. But the third piece is uh, a limited set of engineers that are going to go deep, and we have hands-on workshops and training where they'll actually get very involved. They're going to get their hands dirty. Um, and that's a limited set, six to ten engineers. Um, but those are the engineers that then will work with us to help define the first production instances, the field trials and things like that, that they're going to start to implement. Um, so that's, that's how uh, we've modeled the product packaging along the lines of how these uh, large end users want to adopt new technologies. And then that same architecture then moves into their production systems. And how early stage engineers that are coming online are, exactly. are thinking and, and embracing. Yep. Uh, you, you quite deftly turned a, a, uh, an obstacle into a benefit in a way that I hadn't thought of before. And that was that early stage engineers may, um, may not be interested in learning legacy Sure. Technology. Yep. 
and that not only are they not available, are they are we are we all challenged in finding those early stage employees in, in the state of the world? But once we have them, they're not going to be very motivated if they're looking at something that they know may be reaching its end of life very very yeah, soon. Right? Absolutely, and and not supported by a, uh, a very uh, engaged and uh, dynamic training scenario. You know, we mentioned uh, staffing a while ago. You know, one of the other aspects of an open uh, process automation system is that there's high degrees of automation of the system component, right? So we think of automating the, the control process, but a lot today, a lot of the uh, management of the actual system underlying that process control is all manual. If I need to apply a, a patch, a software patch, or other things, right? It's a lot of, you know, Give me the 30-page uh, instructions. I'll walk out and take a USB key, and we'll fix this, right? Uh, or we're going to pay uh, our DCS vendor $300 an hour to go do it for us, right? Um, and so because we're adopting modern IT architectures, we're able to actually uh, automate a great deal of this, right? We can do updates uh, on process without bringing the process down in any way or affecting it or updates uh, the ability to, if there's a failure, have high availability, but not high availability with what is done today with hardware redundancy. We do this with software redundancy, which means this can be much more prevalent. It can be a standard option with very little cost uh, to have software redundancy. Um, and it works as effectively and actually in many ways more effectively because as you fail over to the secondary, the system can actually self-heal and spin up another secondary in its replacement, right? Those are the kinds of things that can be done when you have a modern IT architecture underneath it. So there's cost savings from, you know, the cost of the, the devices is going to drop significantly, right? But it's also the life, total lifetime costs of uh, removing a lot of the manual efforts that are available today and having things like, you know, software redundancy instead of hardware redundancy. All of that lowers the total cost of ownership significantly for these systems. How about... Um in, in the mobile phone example, it's an, essentially an open device, and we we've been benefiting, but we've been benefiting as humans with with a variety of applications that interoperate with each other. Mm -hmm. You might have a humidity sensor that tells you it's going to rain, or or whatever else in your phone. Um, and while that's a simple example, as as uh, you know, Bob and Don, as you know, I come from um, a background that included intelligent transportation systems, and while that's Structured in a different way, it's very, very government-led. Um, today, there are 20 interoperable standards for the major pieces of hardware that reside on a road: traffic signals and call boxes and toll booths, and and data coming from vehicles. And what one of the unintended consequences, very positive one that was not envisioned when this was uh, started being deployed 10, 15, 20 years ago, was mixing and matching that data. Now, what happens when I know a pedestrian's in a crosswalk and the traffic signal is green? Maybe I could do something about it. Right. And I don't know if you could, um, you know, I'm, I'm guessing that there's a similar scenario of, of applications that will develop that we cannot even envision today. That's right, yeah. yeah. So included in the scope of the OPAS standard, Jim, is pr provisions for software products, which is largely about defining the information models and the exchange mechanisms among software components in a, in a system. And so in the work process, 
part of the certification activity that we talked about earlier, there's going to be a registry of conformant products, including software packages. So, you know, this concept of the app store and automation has been talked about for a long time, but it's never actually been realized. And some vendors have, in effect, many app stores for their product. But we're now talking about an industry standard that allows the ecosystem to contribute best-in-class solutions to customer business problems. Because of the certification process, customers can buy with confidence that it will actually work in the platform architecture. So that's part of what's in the scope of this activity. Let me give you some examples of the types of advanced capabilities that are going to be available on this. And this is just kind of incremental from where we are today. I think there's going to be a lot of things that we can't, like you said, imagine. But today, if you look at model predictive control, right, that's a significant step up from the traditional PID architectures as far as how you can get higher yields out of your systems. But today, those model predictive control applications run at a supervisory level, which means they're above the whole system. And they run at one-minute cycle times. Now, I come out of the IT world, and one-minute cycle times, is that even a cycle time? I'm not sure. But anyway, what you can do, what we're able to do now is take those algorithms, those model predictive control algorithms, and set them right next to the control loops. And they can interoperate with the control loop at one-second cycle times, right, much faster cycle times, which means you can control those processes at a much more granular level, which yields higher yields, right, because you can run closer to the line. And so CSI is one of the leading experts in model predictive control. We've got some of the experts in the industry. And so those are some of the things that we're already demonstrating. We demonstrated that already in the last six months. I wouldn't have thought that low latency was all that important in process control. I think about it in terms of transportation and the vehicle converging on a pedestrian. But I could see where you could eke out a little bit of advantage there. You can reduce those safety buffers, right? That's right. Well, you have to think about some of the processes where the dynamics are very fast and the consequences of not being able to regulate them can have enormous financial consequences. Pieces of turbo machinery, for example, have to be controlled on very, very small sampling rates because the dynamics are so fast. Okay, so that, you know. But there's a lot of examples. There's a lot of examples. It's not just about heating up some big tank. And check the temperature. And check the temperature. It's in those multivariant control systems that it plays out the most. This all sounds great and very blue sky-ish. It's here. It's not blue sky. Come on. Come to our future. Thanks for the authenticity. This is great. That was only a setup to my question. I tried to break out in time. Come on. It was only a setup to my question. I mean, I see you're getting traction, and I see your member count, and the enthusiasm is building since we've heard about this a few years ago. But your initiative does reside in a larger world where some of these systems are not going to go away. So how are not in the short term, days, weeks, months, years. So what support is there for other media platforms, protocols, 
yeah. you know, some of those legacy things that you probably need to connect with. How, how do you we, do that? No, we, we acknowledge that the installed base is going to be there for a long time. So part and parcel of what all of us are working on it are the interfaces to the existing equipment. We don't like, yeah, and so like typically we use the phrase gateway, which is a translation device between an existing system on one side of that interface and the OPAS conformance system on the other side of that interface. So this is, you know, and this is not a new problem for the industry. So uh, essentially all of the operating companies that have gone through control systems upgrades and migrations have found solutions to the problem, Jim, that you just asked us. There, you have, in, in a brownfield situation, you're not going to cut the, well, some plants that shut down regularly, you can actually replace an entire system in, you know, in a, in a small plant a week, in a large plant a couple of months. That's relatively atypical. It, the most, the more typical scenario is you operate the old system in parallel with the new system, sometimes over a period of multiple years. So the industry is, is comfortable, it, it knows how to do that, and it's all contingent on building those gateway devices between the old and the new, and that's part of what we're. And working even on. within a single DCS vendor's ecosystem, right? They will yeah. have to, for their old legacy right. systems, they have to build gateways even to right. their new systems, right? right? Because it's new technology. Sure. So it's not a problem that has not been yeah. overcome, right. and it's 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 overcomable. But it will it'll be a transition. But right. a lot of there's a lot of new greenfield types of applications that are coming uh, online as well. Certainly. Yeah. Do Do you see the standard? Um, Moving from the gateway and the supervisory level down into the sensor or, or, or let's say edge device before we say sensor. Yeah. Well, okay, so we've defined the scope boundary to be the interface from the I.O. module out to the field device. So the sensors and the field protocols are outside the scope of the standard, but we work, we're working very diligently to stay aligned with the evolution of technology at the sensor, actuator, and field device communications level. So I'm going to go into some specifics here. So um, like 4 to 20 milliamp is the, is the, you know, the, the analog way, or, or 0 to 10 volt is the analog way of communicating with sensors. There are digital technologies like Profibus, Profinet, uh, EtherCAT, EtherNet IP. Okay, and, and so we're building the connect connectivity to that category of field devices and networks, but we're also looking ahead at emerging technologies like advanced physical layer, which is two-wire Ethernet, including power over Ethernet, out to what will be genuinely IIoT devices. So we comprehend and embrace all of that, mm -hmm. but the OPAS standard basically goes from the I.O. device up through all of the on-premise compute equipment that will be used for process control. But just like we've talked about that interface to the field device, the interface to the enterprise business systems or cloud resources is in the scope of what we're paying attention to. And we're pleased, uh, we're one of the newest joiners into the COPA coalition of the willing is really good at that control system to cloud connectivity. So we're going to bring that into the scope of the COPA collaboration. 
So again, uh, open process automation is a platform upon which you can do a bunch of innovative things, right? It's an open platform. You can insert new technologies. You can evolve these systems. And you can bring in best of breed technologies, whether that's from the industrial space or the IT space, and, and integrate these on top of the platform. Let me give you an example of cybersecurity, um, which is obviously very important in the smart city world and sure. critical infrastructure, right? Um, so we have, first of all, we have OPAS, uh, has, which is the standard, has built in OPCUA as the, the technology or the, the standard that's used to communicate up and down uh, the system. Uh, that is encrypted, it's authenticated, it's authorized, so it's got built-in uh, in, uh, cybersecurity from day one, right, as opposed to most of the leggy systems, which they're you know, mostly just building walls around them to, to make sure that there's no uh, safety issues. But if somebody punctures that exterior wall, right, it's, uh, you know, it's open game, right? But we can do now, so that's kind of built into the standard, but we can also then take kind of the best of breed, the cutting edge cybersecurity that's coming out of industry and insert that into the system as well. So we just did a demonstration about a month and a half ago with Intel, and Intel now has a new t technology that allows for them to uh, verify that a device is trustworthy. Uh, and they use this using cryptographic signatures. So it's got a, a chip called a TPM chip, which is specifically uh, created for this. And it will take a look at what's installed on a, on a, on a device uh, and create what they call a hash key. It's a, think of it as a cryptographic signature. So once you've got that cryptographic signature, you just monitor that device. If that cryptographic signature changes, and you haven't updated it, and or, you know you haven't changed it. Then you know that there's uh, some sort of somebody's messed with it, right? And therefore, there could be a risk of a cybersecurity uh, break-in. So, um, so the, so we demonstrated that. Matter of fact, uh, we're at RSA this week, uh, which is the biggest cybersecurity uh, conference in the world, uh, and we're demonstrating that with Intel at that show. Um, so there's uh, the ability to take cutting-edge. You know, capabilities. This is the technology that came out of Google, and Intel now is making it more broadly uh, available, and we're the first ones demonstrating that inside of an industrial control system that can actually change the game a lot for cybersecurity. Uh, but those are just, you know, you can build in threat detection. There's all kinds of, cybersecurity is a chess game. So you're always trying to match whatever is going on uh, with the latest cybersecurity threats because they're coming out with new ways to do it all the time. But your current systems, can't, they're kind of cast in cement. You can't really evolve them or, or you know, move it to, to, to meet the latest cybersecurity threats. When you have an open system, you can do that. You can take these best-of-breed cybersecurity components and integrate them easily. So. That's just a fascinating example. Um, you, you've outlined the initiative you know, tremendously well today. Uh, what, what do you see for the future? Where, where is your initiative going to uh, evolve over the next days, weeks, months, and years? Well, the, you know, the ecosystem that's, that you know, is envisioned I mean, has to be reduced to practice, right? So the component suppliers have to bring conformant products forward, get them registered. The systems integrators have to learn uh, how to, you know, and, and deliver OPAS-based systems, gain the confidence of the customers, of the buyers, establish a track record of commercial installations of OPAS-based systems. So there's going to be a, a scaling activity here. Think of the technical readiness levels of the, of the NASA model. So we're going to still have to climb up that ladder of technical readiness. But 
you know, once that happens, then then we believe that that innovative ecosystem that Bob sketched out earlier uh, in this interview is going to start to happen, and the amount of economic value creation in the OT space is just going to blossom. It's going to be like a renaissance, as we have seen in adjacent industries. So we, I just probably sketched out maybe maybe a decade there, Jim. And if you look at the transition where the DCS systems that we have today, how they originally came to be, right? Um, they were replacing some microcomputers that, anyway, I, I won't go into the details, but that transition, once it was proven, the technology and, the, and this, it's really a new business model as well. Yeah. Once that was proven out, uh, new systems that were bought, that transition happened within a four to five year period. Now that doesn't mean all the legacy systems are going to be replaced, but new but the systems, green, the greenfield, the new greenfield, the greenfield. We're going to we're going to see a. a I think you're going to see field. you're going to see a fast yeah. transformation the to this uh, of new systems being bought in in four or five years. Yeah. Once, point, once that I, ecosystem I, develops, you're just going to yeah. see a cliff on the greenfield. No, at some point you hit you hit an inflection point. Right. Uh, we we do an awful lot of um, work in the area of electric vehicles. And you know, they're, they're the inflection point everyone wait, is waiting for there is simply when the all-in cost of electric vehicles is below that of an uh, internal combustion engine vehicle. Mm-hmm. And when that happens, well, there won't be any more inter- internal combustion engine vehicles sold. Yeah. It'll be all right. over. Yeah. And that will happen. And it's just your guess. Is it two yeah. years out or five years out? Yeah. Um, and we're working right now with a lot of the leading-edge innovative companies around the world. Uh, some of the Fortune 1000s that are part of OPATH are now adopting uh, Copa Quickstart to yeah. start to start down this journey, right? Uh, and we're planning on field trial workshops with them and that sort of thing. So they're they're moving down the this whole uh, road starting now. But we think we're going to have the early majority is going to follow fairly quickly as they start to test this out. Yeah. Um, and you know we have these training units today; those may or may not be needed in the future, right? You may turn to wood and say, "Hey, I just We're need a ready system. To go. Here's We're our ready spec. To go. Here's our spec. Build, you know, for build it and yeah. deploy it. Right. So th- I think that's going to happen in the next two to three years. You're going to see that transformation. So um, it's real and it's happening now. And I want to encourage your listeners to, you know, if you your impression was from four years ago about what open process automation is, things have happened and things have changed in the last year. Uh, and you need to kind of uh, take a look at how that's and, going to and affect we're, your we're actually hearing what Bob just said as we go and do business development. I mean, customers that we're knowledgeable of, we're passively monitoring, are now coming back to us and say, wow, we really see things changing. We're going to pay a lot more attention now. Yeah, I mean, we're people involved, are telling yeah. us this. Yeah. That, that's great. Uh, we'd all be remiss if we didn't issue a, a strong call to action. <laughs> so, so out of all of your... Um, Participants or, or stakeholder communities, let's say, in your ecosystem, um, can you perhaps you know list them and suggest ways for them to participate in this effort? Yeah. Well, I, I think you know with with, with standards work um, be, because there is a long time time constant for standards. If you really want to achieve competitive advantage by being an early adopter, you need to get. Uh, uh, anticipatory understanding of where things are headed. So I would recommend to people, you know, it's time the call to action is maybe to to the the operating companies as well as the suppliers who are not current members of the OPA forum to join to get that enlightened insight on where this is headed. Secondly, 
it's the time has come. I mean, our companies are, are bringing something that they can buy to get started with the transition to OPAS-based systems. So if you're ready to make that commitment, we're ready to help you get started. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, they can go to our website, copacontrols.org, uh, and you can read about what we're offering, uh, and you can contact us through there as well. There's an email, get started. Uh, uh, I'm forgetting the email address, but it's that's, on the website, copacontrol.org. So, yeah. <laughs> Let's go back to that. That's great. So, so I think, just just to restate, yeah. if you are uh, really want to go and drive into, and dig deep into the standards, join the Standards Association, participate, read it, learn it, live it. Right. If, if you are an end user, that's an operator of a facility, yeah. there, are, uh, there is already a wealth of resources uh, of different types that you could you could shop for either a turnkey system from from wood, uh, some training system, some perhaps you just go just for training at this point. Wait, and you don't deploy anything for a, a little while. Yeah. Uh, there are also you could go out and look for actual components that are on the market that are in fact ready to go today. Yeah. Familiarize yourself with yeah. the with the ecosystem. Yeah. Uh, did we leave any out? No. No. I that's think right. that's it. I think that's the three categories, Jim. Yeah. Great. Well, we've had uh, a great time here covering open process automation. Um, are there any last uh, comments you have for our audience today? Uh, it's real. Um, it's not just a slide we're in, in a vision, and, and you can purchase it today. Absolutely. Yep. All right. So before we go, we're going to try one more time for that contact information. How about we just go with the website? We'll go with the website, copacontrol.org. Okay, copacontrol.org. Well, thanks, Bob and Don, for, for joining us today on the Smart City Podcast, and we look forward to um, having all of our listeners join us again on an edition of the Smart City Podcast. Thank you. Thanks, Jim. Broadcasting from Boston, Massachusetts, the Smart Cities Podcast is the only podcast dedicated to all things smart cities. The podcast is the creation of ARC Advisory Group's Smart City Practice. ARC advises leading companies, municipalities, and governments on technology trends and market dynamics that affect their business and quality of life in their cities. To engage further, please like and share our podcast or reach out directly on Twitter at Smart City Viewpoints or on our website at www.arcweb.com backslash industries backslash smart dash cities.